Welcome to this week's podcast from Free Chapel in Orange County. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, check out our website at freechapel.org. Well, if you have your Bible, open them with me to the book of Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. And I want to talk to you for a few moments. I want to tell the truth about this message. I wrote this message uh, 30 years ago. That's, I'm telling how old I am. So I'm, I was three years old when I wrote this sermon. And, and, but I used to preach that when I was an evangelist, Cerise and I traveled, and I was an evangelist for seven years, and I used to preach all over the nation. I traveled all over the nation. And this is one of the messages that God gave me that, that began to open doors all over the world. And I've kind of revised it a little bit today. But I want you to open your heart because there's, there's something about a message like this that I've learned that when I go back and touch some of these, I, I could take you to the apartment, actually as a condo that I was living in, that God had provided for me that when I wrote the message that I'm going to share with you, to the little table, my mind goes back. And there's something about messages like this that if you'll lean in, there's life in them. There's life in what I'm going to share with you tonight. So lean in and hear the Word of God. The Word has the power tonight. And I want to teach you how to overcome. And I want us to look at the three coats of Joseph. He wore three coats in his lifetime, and you're going to wear them too. I want you to see them. The first coat is in Genesis chapter 37, in verse 31. So they took Joseph's tunic or coat and killed the kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they, broke, they, they sent the coat of many colors and brought it to the father. And they said, is this your son's coat or not? That's the first coat of Joseph. It's a bloody coat, the coat of many colors. The second coat is found in Genesis 39 and verse 11. But it happened at a time when Joseph went into the house to do his work. None of the men of the house was inside. And she, speaking of Potiphar's wife called him by the garment, saying, Lie with me, sleep with me, go to bed with me. But he left his coat in her hand and fled and ran outside. Notice this part. And so it was when she saw that he left his garment or his coat in her hand and fled outside that she, I'll sum it up, she, she said, she came up with a false charge and he was thrown into prison. And then one more coat that Joseph wore in in Genesis 41 and verse 41. Genesis 41 and, and verse 41. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took a signet ring off of his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in a coat of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot which he had, and they cried out before him, Bow the knee. And so he set him over all the land of Egypt. Verse 45 says, And Pharaoh called Joseph's name, changed his name, to zabnath Paneah. I love Joseph because he is the perfect type of Jesus in the Old Testament. For example, Joseph was his father's favorite son. That's why he made him a coat of many colors. And the same claim was made over Jesus on the muddy banks of the Jordan River when he was baptized by John, a voice boomed from heaven, this is my beloved son 
in whom I'm well pleased. Joseph was betrayed for 20 pieces of silver by his brothers. Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph was betrayed by his own brothers. Jesus went into his own and his own received him not. Joseph was thrown into a pit and left for dead. Jesus was thrown into a tomb and left for dead. Joseph was raised from the pit and went to the palace and sat at the right hand of the king. Jesus was raised from the dead and sits at the right hand as king of kings and lord of lords. Joseph was given a new name, Zabnathpaneah, which means the revealer of secrets and the savior of the world. Jesus has been given a name that is above every name. And the end of the story, Joseph has all of his enemies bow down on the knee. You read it. They bow their knee to his power and his authority. And that's the part of the prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet. But there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, so Joseph is a beautiful picture of Christ, but he's also a powerful picture of you and I, the believer. And his story can be told in the three coats that Joseph wore. The first, the first coat is the coat of many colors. And we're going to call this coat the coat of salvation. The second coat that Joseph wore was the one that he left in the hands of the woman who tried to get him to sleep with him. And it's the coat of Christian character. The third coat is the coat that Pharaoh put on him after he went through the trial of his life, and it's the coat of the overcomer. Now look at the first coat. It's found in Genesis 37 in verse 3. Now Jacob or Israel, Jacob was his daddy's name, loved Joseph more than all his children. Notice this, and the father Jacob made the son a coat of many colors. This is a picture of our salvation. Why do I say that? Notice that the coat was a gift from the father. Joseph didn't provide one inch of fabric. Joseph didn't stitch one piece of the coat. Joseph didn't pay for one penny of the cost of the coat. It was a free gift from the Father to the Son. And 21 times in the New Testament, salvation is called the gift of God. No one will stand in heaven and say, look what Jesus and I did. If you could add one penny, one cent to your Provision of salvation, you would be a co-redeemer with Jesus Christ and you nullify the power of the cross. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 said, God for Christ's sake has forgiven us. 1 Corinthians 1 and 30 says, what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is absolutely nothing. The Bible said in the Old Testament that God remembered Abraham and spared Lot. If I had been writing that, I would have said God remembered Lot and spared Lot, but that is incorrect. The only reason that God brought Lot out of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, when God opened up heaven and poured hell out on Sodom and Gomorrah, the only reason he spared Lot is because Lot had a praying friend named Abraham up in the mountains who was interceding for him, and God remembered Abraham and spared Lot. My only claim to salvation is I've got a praying friend up in the mountains of glory. His name is Jesus. And when God decides to baptize this world in judgment again, he's going to remember my friend Jesus and spare Jensen, and he's going to translate me out of this world, transport me into his presence, transfigure me into his image, and it's all because of what the Father has done for me. 
It's a gift. It's a free gift from the Father. Notice something else about this coat. It was not only freely given, but notice that it was the coat of many pieces. The coat of many colors. One translation said it was skillfully pieced together by the hand of the Father. The Father put it together from the beginning. I want you to understand that your salvation is not an accident. The cross was not an afterthought. Before there was ever a sinner on earth, there was a Savior in heaven. For He was the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the earth was ever laid. God had a salvation plan for you and I. And he carefully pieced that code of salvation together. I can see that hand in creation as he metered out the, the, the stars with a, with a span and weighed the mountains in their balance. And God took nothing and hung it on nothing. The Bible said God took nothing, made it into something, and then hung that on nothing. You can't hang your hat on nothing, but God hung the whole world on nothing. And he created the earth with salvation in mind. And then I can see that hand as it pieces another piece of our salvation in that coat as he brings two and a half million Jews out of Egyptian slavery. And they're out in the hot Sinai desert and they don't have anything to eat, but God sends 26,500 tons of manna every morning and every evening to feed two and a half million people. And he makes water comes out of rocks. Why does he do that? Because he's going to raise a Messiah out and he's sewing together our coat of salvation. I can see that hand as it, as it rocks the cradle in Bethlehem. And now the word has become flesh. And there's a little baby that has the hand. The hand that made the world is now encased in flesh. And the father is rocking that cradle. And we would have done it so differently. We would have had the king of glory born in a royal nursery perfumed in Chanel number five. But instead it's a filthy barnyard smelling like manure number six. But he had a plan and the hand of God is on the earth. And now I see that hand 30 years later piecing another piece of that coat together as it reaches down and scoops up mud and spits in it and slaps it in the eyes of a blind man. And he washed in the water and when he opened his eyes, he was the luckiest man in the world because the first face that he saw was the face of Jesus Christ. And I can see that hand as they throw a woman in front of him and say she's guilty of adultery stone her to death and he writes a love letter in the sand and he says neither do I condemn you go and sin no more and I can see the father piecing that coat he's almost got it complete as the son hangs on the cross and that hand is curled around a spike and he cries out it is finished and where is that hand today that hand today is where John Wesley the great hymn writer said in one of his songs he says, before the throne, my Savior stands. My name is written within his hand. And it's the truth. Our name, according to the book of Isaiah, is written in his hand. And he has provided a code of salvation. How the Father sees me today is in the hands of Christ. He sees me today in that code of salvation. It's the gift of God. And then notice something else about that coat. Not only was it carefully pieced together, not only was it a gift from the Father, but the Bible said that it was a full-length coat. It was not a vest. It was not a, a, a coat like I have on now. One, one commentary said it was complete from head to toe, including a hood. In other words, it covered completely 
everything about us from the uttermost to the guttermost. It had us covered. And one other thing, it was a blood-dipped coat because they took the coat and slew an innocent animal and they dipped that coat in the blood of a goat and because the animal was slain, Joseph kept living. And our coat of salvation has been dipped in the blood of an innocent Lamb of God called Jesus Christ. And because of what He did on the cross, I am forgiven. I want you to understand that it is a blood-stained coat that we stand in. You can't see it, but invisibly tonight, because I have received the gift of salvation, I am completely covered. And when the Father sees me, He sees me covered in the blood. Not only am I covered, but why is that important? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. I want you to understand, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If you take the blood out of that book called the Bible, it's nothing more than a boring history lesson. If you take the blood out of this church, it's nothing more than a dead corpse. If you take the blood out of the gospel, men and women walk away condemned and on their way to hell. But the good news is because the blood was shed on the cross, we are completely covered and forgiven. How many of you have on a coat of salvation tonight? Give God a praise. Let me quickly introduce you to the second coat that Joseph wore. The second coat that Joseph wore is found in Genesis chapter 39. Now, Pharaoh, or, or Potiphar, had a young wife. Let me tell you about her. The Bible gives us some details. The Bible said she was beautiful, she was lonely, she was bored, and she was spoiled. On the other hand, Joseph was handsome. He was rugged, he was every inch a man, and he had sterling character. And she repeatedly tried to seduce him. The Bible said she set her eyes upon him. Because he was a person of the presence. The Bible said God was with him. Five times God was with him. And when you're a person of the presence and you have character, it's attractive to people. And you have to be able to handle that if God's going to use you. And the Bible said that Joseph caught the eye of this beautiful married woman. And there came a day when the stage was set and the house was empty and nobody was there but her and Joseph. And so she moved in for the kill and she offered him her body. And the Bible said he fled and ran out of there. And as he was running from her, she reached out and grabbed his coat and ripped it off his back. And she's holding in, his, in her hands the coat of his Christian character. He would not get in the bed with her. He ran from her. He fled and got out of there. And this bitter, disillusioned, rejected woman suddenly screams rape. She trumped up the charges. Pharaoh came home, never even listened to Joseph's side of the story, and threw him in prison for 13 years for a crime he did not commit. And five times it says while he was in prison, but God was with Joseph. Now listen to me carefully. Every believer has two coats. The first coat is the coat of salvation. And God is responsible for that one. But the second coat is the coat of Christian character. And you are responsible for that coat. Notice that the Egyptians never saw Joseph's first coat, the coat of salvation. 
But they all saw the coat that she was handing, that she was holding when he ran away and wouldn't get in bed with her. Her Christian character was seen by everybody, even though her invisible coat of salvation was seen by nobody. There are two sides to this proposition of Christian living. There's your position in Christ. Jesus provides that. But there is your condition in Christ. And that's your responsibility. It's how you appear before people. There's imputed righteousness. That's when God the Father goes to the bank of Calvary, makes a withdrawal from the riches of the cross, and puts it in your account. And you don't deserve it. It's His gift to you. There's imputed righteousness, and then there's practical righteousness. Practical comes from the word practice. It's when you practice your faith by the lifestyle that you live. If I were to go to a car dealership down the road, and I were to say, I'd like to try out one of these cars, and I've been thinking about getting me this Ford or Chevy or whatever it is, I'd like to have one of these. And they said, sure, take this demonstrator car and drive it around and see how you like it. Let's say I pulled out of the parking lot of that dealership and I went down the road and got to the third stoplight and all of a sudden I noticed smoke coming out of the engine. I noticed the muffler was dragging and sparks were flying. Two of the wheels fall off. The car starts coughing and choking and suddenly it gives up the ghost and I have to be towed back to the dealership. Do you really think I would buy that car or buy any car from that dealership? If the demonstrator breaks down, nobody wants the product. It's about as good as this going to get. So if you don't, if you don't like it, I, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm good with it. But I'm preaching better than you're letting on right now. I said if the demonstrator breaks down, nobody wants the product. And you are the demonstrator of the real product, Jesus Christ. And his reputation rises or falls on your demonstration. So are we really serious? We sing sweet hour of prayer, but we don't pray 10 minutes. We sing bring them in and we pull up with empty cars. We sing standing on the promises, but never crack the book open. Instead, we're sitting on the premises. We sing, I love to tell the story, but we don't ever witness to anybody. And we sing, he's coming soon, but we live like he's changed his mind. But the thing that the world is looking for is not just people who talk the talk, but people who have the code of Christian character. People who, who, who by their lifestyle are different. And it makes a difference because people see. They never saw the first coat, but the whole nation saw the second coat, the coat of Christian character. Now, Joseph had a perfect setting for sin. If anybody was an excusable defection, it was Joseph. Why do I say that? Number one, he was young. And out of the five basic drives that God gives every human being, the drive for sex, companionship, and love is the strongest. So Satan was hitting this young man when a beautiful woman came and said, lie with me. He was hitting this young man with the biggest missile in Satan's armory. He was young. Number two, he was far from home. And it's amazing how sin is intensified when we're not under the, the, the scrutinizing eyes of people who know us the best. And when you're far from home and nobody's watching you, that's when your real character either shines or you become who you are when nobody's looking. 
He was far from home. He was young. Notice something else. There was a seducing woman. She was very beautiful and very persistent. Most of us can fight off a major attack, but when it comes day after day after day, and she was persistent daily saying, lie with me, sleep with me. Notice that she was beautiful. God's not going to kill all the good looking people so you can stay saved. Just keep moving. <laughs> the last reason that I say he could have easily fallen in his character is because there was the absence of her husband. He was out of town. And when that happens, the enemy always whispers, Joseph, you can do it and get away with it. Nobody will ever know. That's the lie of the enemy. How did Joseph handle it? In Genesis 39 and verse 12, it said he fled and got him out. The Bible never tells us to fight fornication. Fornication is sex outside of marriage. The Bible never tells us to fight. Come on, fight it. It says flee from it. The Bible said flee fornication. This ain't, never did it say fight it. It means vacate the premises. If something dirty is on TV, vacate. You get away from it. Don't sit there and fight. Now I plead the blood of Jesus and I'm just going to look to see. It doesn't work that way. Get out of there. Vacate the premises. Because the longer you stay wrong, the harder it is to get right. Preaching better than you lay on. The devil can, uh, listen, a blind man can beat you up anytime he wants to. All he's got to do is turn out the lights. You're on his turf then. And the devil knows all I got to do to jack you up is get you in the right atmosphere. And that's why the Bible said, don't fight fornication, flee. Let's do some plain talking about temptation since you're so quiet. Make no provision for the flesh. If you feed the flesh an inch today, it'll take a mile tomorrow. If you give it a teaspoon, it'll want a swimming pool tomorrow. You'll discover you don't have it. It has you. And if you don't deal with temptation, temptation will deal with you. All of us, every day of our lives, face temptation. But dishonest Christians are ashamed to admit that they're tempted and what hypocrites we are. I actually have people sometimes who have come to my office and said, now, Pastor, I really need to talk to you. And I know you're not going to be able to understand, but I'm really being tempted. <laughs> As though I'm made of super spiritual molecules and that I never have any temptations. The truth is, the higher you climb up the mountain, the stronger the wind blows. It's the truth. Why does God permit temptation? I'm going to give you four quick reasons. Why does God, commit, why does God permit us to be tempted? Number one, to reveal our weaknesses. God will not allow us to live with an oversized opinion of ourselves. And whether we want to recognize it or not, the more you pat us on the back, the bigger our head gets. If you would have told David when he had brought the Ark of the Covenant back and he had slain Goliath that, that one day you're going to commit adultery and one day you're going to spin a web of lies that will make Watergate look like a, a, a nothing and, and you, you, you're going to get a girl pregnant out of wedlock and you're going to do all this stuff. He would have looked at you and said, you're crazy. I'm a man after God's own heart. It'll never happen to me. I'm God's Mr. Wonderful. If you'd have said to Simon Peter, one day you're going 
to deny Christ three times, he would have said, not me, those other 11 losers may fail you, but I am the rock and upon this rock, I will build my church and don't you dare tell me. But in the end, he's weeping bitterly. David says, shame has covered my face. And they forgot that they're just human. And the, and the truth is, if... If, if most of us had not failed, nobody could live with us. And God certainly couldn't use us because it's in our brokenness that we lose our pride. And we are totally dependent upon Him. The second reason that God permits temptation, turn to somebody and say, you need this message. This message is not for me. This is for you because you're a freak and you need this message. Not me, you. Because that's how y'all acting. I feel you, little funky spirit. I feel it out there. I feel you. I feel you. So you just keep on playing that little plastic religious game. I'm on target tonight, and I know it. And I don't mess with me. You know me. I'll kick that cat right off this porch. I don't mess around when I. Y'all acting a little bit too holyfied. Oh, this whole section over here. Somebody really needs this word. You need this word. You little. The second reason that God permits temptation is to reveal the need for watchfulness. Don't forget what I'm preaching. He wants you to stay alert. There was a little boy who went fishing on a rock at the ocean. And he was throwing his rod and reel and the tide came in a little bit too much and it swept his feet from out from under him and he fell off the rock and went right into the water and right under the ocean came out and the water was freezing. He was aggravated, lost half of his tackle box and he comes out of that rock and there was an old man watching the whole thing. He walks over and he said, son, how did you come to fall in? He said, mister, I didn't come to fall in. I came to fish. It just happened. I fell in. <laughs> a lot of us know what it is to be on the rock. All of a sudden, a tide of carnality hits us and takes us off the rock. Before we know it, we're in over our head. And we don't even know how it happened. But nine times out of ten, it's because we were not watchful and alert. I'm saying to you today that it's while Saul slept that David creeped into the cave and cut his skirt and took his spear and ran across the valley and said, David, Saul, I could have killed you. It's while Saul slept that he was vulnerable. It's while Samson slept that he was given the most expensive haircut in human history and Delilah cut off the seven locks of power while he slept. It's while Sisera, the king of the Philistines, slept that J.L., a Hebrew woman, put a tent peg to his head and drove it through him and nailed him to the ground while he slept. While the servant slept in the parable of Christ, the, 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 the servant came in and the evil one came in and sowed tares among the wheat while they slept. And my point is, if we are to protect our anointing, please listen to me. If we are to protect our position, if we're to protect our identity, our character, our integrity, our ministries, our very lives, we better stay awake. The Bible said, watch and pray. 
put on the whole armor of God. Know that there's an enemy who is roaming about seeking whom he may devour. Wake up. You don't play with stuff. You don't play with sin. The enemy's after your anointing and after your calling. Watch and pray. And he allows temptation to reveal to us the need for watchfulness. Thirdly, God permits temptation, especially for self-made people, to force us into a position of trust and dependency. There was a large portly man who was bragging about his business accomplishments and the corporation that he had built. And he made this statement, I am a self-made man. A little boy looked up and said, what'd you make yourself like that for? There's something about us that the more successful we become, the more powerful we become, the richer we become. If we don't watch it, we lose our dependency on God. We become disconnected and trust more in our ability and what we do. And we lose that dependency on God. And so that's why Deuteronomy 32 and 11 says, As an eagle flutters over her young, listen to these words, and stirs up her nest, so the Lord guided and developed Israel. I wrote in my Bible, Flight training manual for student eagles and earthbound Christians. When God is going to teach you a new lesson on how to overcome he will put you through Deuteronomy 32 and verse 11. He will stir up your nest. What do you mean? I want you to come with me in your imagination to an eerie cliff ledge in a remote rocky range. And there, sitting on a perch, is a strong nest that's been built out of thorns and branches. And it's been fur-lined with rabbit fur and other animals that were prey for the mother eagle. Inside are two little eaglets that have an amazing, comfortable, incredible life. They lay around in that fur all day and twice a day like Domino's Pizza, mother brings a worm and a piece of meat and they open their mouth and she drops it down and they think this is really living. But mother has something that's bothering her because they've been in the nest and they've been comfortable for a long time. And they're not growing and they're not using what God has given them. They were not designed to live in the nest. They were designed for the potential to soar in the skies. And it begins to bother mother. And so she says, I got to get them out of that nest. And so one day she's flying beautiful figure eights. And they turn to each other and they say, what is mother doing? That looks fun. That's beautiful. And they just look at each other and they say, that's nice. And then they go right back to enjoying their nest. And she's a little ticked off because she thought that would inspire them to hop out of the nest and fly. But it didn't work. So she comes back and they're just looking at her. And she walks over and she's ticked off and she starts ripping the fur out. And now those branches and thorns are sticking those little darlings. And they're like, what in the world? One of them looks at the other and says, what's wrong with mother? She got up on the wrong side of the bed. She's in one of those moods. What's going on? And, and they still refuse to get out of the nest even though the fur is gone. And then she walks over and crushes the thorns and tears the nest apart. And they're standing there and they're thinking she's lost her mind. Mother 
mother has gone crazy and she starts flapping her wings and she pushes them off the edge and they go falling, falling. Are you with me? Falling, 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 plummeting, tumbling, wind velocity, racing through their ears, tiny hearts beating out of their chest, jagged rocks coming up faster, faster, faster. And they look at each other and say, mother has killed us. But suddenly, just before they hit the bottom, she swoops down and picks them up on her wings. She starts going up, 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 up. And one of them says, oh, thank God. I hope I never have to go through that again. And it ticks mother off and she dumps them again. And here they go again. And for some birds, it takes two or three times to get the message. And other birds, it takes 40, 50 times, 60 times. But at somewhere in the process, one of the little Eaglet says, you know, I've been noticing the basic design that we have the very same material that mother has. And this is getting kind of old and I'm kind of tired of this. So I think I'm going to spread my wings. And, 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 and he does. And at first he tries to do a figure eight and it's more like a figure seven. And he's bumping into branches and bumping into trees and he's all over the place. But he finally gets his wings up under him and he begins to understand that the greatest trial that he went through was ordained by the one who loved him the most because he wanted to produce their greatest triumph. And so, what I'm saying to you, dear folks, is adversity was the key to advancement and victory. And many times we pray, God, deliver me. And God says, oh, no, I'm going to develop you. And we say, oh God, what about my comfort? And God says, but what about your character? And oh God, take me out of this. And God says, no, I'm going to take you through this one. And we get saved and God puts us in a beautiful nest called Free Chapel. And I tell you, the preachers get up and preach and they just feed us the word of God and it's fur lined and we're enjoying ourselves. And we, you know, you know, just everything's going beautiful from the new birth to the new Jerusalem. No storms, no trials. Hallelujah. This is what really living is now. I'm so glad. And all of a sudden, one day. God comes and starts plucking out all the fur and the thorns are hitting you. And just when you think it can't get any worse, it feels like you've been thrown out of the nest and you're falling and tumbling. All God is doing is saying to you, the only reason I'm allowing you to go through what you're going through is because I have designed you not to live in the nest and be comfortable, but to depend on me and to look to me and to use your faith to soar like you've never soared before. Everybody give them a big praise. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. How many of you feel like God's disturbing your nest a little bit? Good. And by the way, if you've got a 30-year-old son still living at home, he really needs this tape. Now, let's keep moving. Just thought I'd throw that in there. My God. I wouldn't... Well, I need to keep moving. You are not going to stay home and play games all day on the TV while I go work. Throw Jonah off the boat. That's all I'm going to say. Let's keep moving. There's one more reason why God permits temptation. Will you give me five more minutes and I'll be done. There's one more reason why God allows temptation. Listen to this. It's to teach you. 
you don't get anything else out of this night, this is the biggest thing I can say to you. It's to teach you to starve the flesh and feed the spirit. You can't hear that phrase enough. Everybody say it. Starve the flesh, feed the spirit. If you hold a post-mortem on all of the worst failures and defeats in your life, the times when you've really messed up, you'll see three things. You'll see, number one, a broken down altar. You'll see a closed Bible. And you'll see broken lines of communication with the Father. Therefore, if you want to reverse and go from weakness to strength, you have to rebuild the altar. You have to restore the Word of God to a daily diet in your life, and you'll discover the weak can become strong. You can't improve on air. Just breathe it. You can't improve on water. Just drink it. You can't improve on the wheel. Just ride on it. You can't improve on electricity. Just plug into it. And you can't improve on prayer and the Word of God. Just read it and just do it. And I'm telling you, even if you don't think you're getting anything out of it, if you will read it as a daily diet and talk to the Father and pray daily, you are growing stronger. And whatever area of your life is weak, you begin to overcome when you, when you starve the flesh and feed the Spirit. That's how you overcome. There was an old native Indian who got born again and he went to his pastor and he didn't know how to say it, but he began to feel the old nature rising up against the new nature that he had received in Christ. And he told his pastor like this. He said, Pastor, I have a problem since I've given my heart to Jesus Christ. He said, I have two big dogs inside of me. And he said, there's a white dog and a brown dog and they keep fighting one another. Every day of my life, it's like this old dog is fighting this new dog and they're trying to kill each other. And the wise pastor said, which dog wins the fight? He said, you know, I haven't thought about it, but the dog I feed the most wins the fight. And if you feed the old nature, that dog's going to defeat the new nature. But on the other hand, if you will feed the new nature, starve the flesh, and feed the spirit, you can overcome, you can win. Now let me, let me close this message with the third coat because it's so important. The Bible said that Joseph finally reached a place in his life Where after all of the years of false accusation and lies and attacks that came against him. He was raised from the pit and put in the palace. And Pharaoh put around him a coat. It's the coat of the overcomer. Question. What did Joseph overcome? He overcame slander. He overcame temptation of the worst kind. He overcame being disappointed, his friends. He overcame hatred from his own family. It was his own flesh and blood that put him in that prison for 13 years. And yet he did not 
stay in a place of offense and hurt, he overcame it. He overcame lies. He overcame slander. He overcame the need for revenge and retaliation. He actually reached a place where you know you have forgiven someone when you have the power to do good to them and you do not withhold it. And he actually looked at the people, brought them all in. Potiphar's wife, Potiphar, brought in all of his brothers, everyone who did him wrong, the butler, everybody who forgot him. He brought them in and he said to them, you meant it for my evil. And I know I could be a victim and I could whine about what every one of you did to me the rest of my life, but I'm not an undergoer, I'm an overcomer. And you meant it for my evil, but I don't see you in it. I see what God has done through it. But God meant it for my good. So I am an overcomer. Revelation said to him that overcomes five times, I will give a crown of life. It takes 150 degrees to make 10. It takes 500 degrees to make brass. It takes 1130 degrees to make silver. It takes 1400 degrees to make gold. Question, do you want to be a tin Christian, a brass Christian, a silver Christian, or a gold Christian? And if you say, I want to be a gold Christian, then God's going to turn the heat up until all the scum rises to the top. And he's going to keep skimming it off until he can see his reflection. And you look like Jesus, act like Jesus, love like Jesus, forgive like Jesus. That's what he's after in your life. And when he does that in your life, you are an overcomer. You're not a victim anymore. I have set you, I have set you over all the land. Now I ask you this in closing. Have you been living a defeated life? Are you discouraged about losing the battle with prescription drugs, alcohol, the lust of the flesh, sin? Secret bondage? Are you tired of being defeated because of what somebody did to you and it was real and it was wrong and it was painful, but you don't want to be a victim the rest of your life? You know what Joseph did? He so got over what happened to him that the Bible said he named his first son Manasseh, which means the Lord has made me to forget. Now listen to this. One translation, modern translation said that he named his firstborn son Past Shut Up. You ought to preach on that. You have been made an overcomer when you give birth to a baby and name it Past Shut Up. I'm not going to live in the pain of what people did to me. Past, shut up. The Lord has made me to forget the pain of my father's house. That's what he said. And I'm saying to you, and this is what I heard the Lord say to me the other day, and I added this to this little sermon. I'm not asking you 
to come up with more strength to try to fight your weakness. I'm asking you one simple question. Would you be willing to hand your weakness over to Jesus tonight? Would you let go of it? Would you desire, just desire to have victory over it? Would you invite him to be first in your life? If you're willing to do that, you can leave here with victory over temptation, victory over addiction, victory over your past, victory over, I really feel this thing, hurt in your own family that's come. The Bible said a man's enemies will be of his own house. Nobody can hurt you like those who are closest to you. But you can overcome bitterness and forgive and love. And, and Mother Teresa wrote this, and I want to I close with it. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it really fit well with what I just preached. Joseph would amen Mother Teresa on this. People are often illogical, unreasonable, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish motives. Do good anyway. If you are successful, you will win some false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. If you're honest, people may cheat you. Be honest anyway. The biggest ideas can be shot down by the smallest minds. But think big anyway. People need help, but may attack you if you try to help. But help people anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. But give the world the best you have anyway. You'll see in the final analysis, it was between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. And that's it. Stand to your feet all over this building. So what I'm saying to you tonight is are you willing? I'm not telling you to try to fight it again. I'm asking you, are you willing to put it, the weakness, the defeat? Aren't you tired of defeat? Don't you want to be an overcomer? Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you were blessed.